You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. Join us now for Bishop Sheen Presents, hosted by Al Smith. Hello, my dear friends, and welcome to another edition of Bishop Sheen Presents here on Radio Maria Canada, a Catholic voice wherever you are. When I think of great voices, I think of Bishop Sheen. And it was his voice that touched the hearts of millions of souls through his radio addresses and his television programs. And we'd like to share a few of those reflections with you today. So I would invite you to sit back and relax and enjoy the wit and the wisdom of the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome to another edition of Bishop Sheen Presents. And uh, today, Bishop Sheen will talk about what love is. And I know that's a question that many of us ask, but uh, no one gives the answer quite like Bishop Sheen. And he'll also talk about the infinity of littleness. And uh, one of my favorite reflections he gave on his Life is Worth Living program. So I'd ask you just again to sit back and relax and enjoy the candor of this brilliant man, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Suppose I asked you the one word that is used most often in our American culture, what would it be? I think it would be the word love. I remember once addressing the students of a university in Tennessee, and there was a dormitory that was seven stories high, and on every window in the dormitory was written the word love. It was spelled L-U-V. But it was love just the same. And it is generally assumed today that anything is all right, provided you love. Now, let us see if that is true. So, children, have you got pencils and paper? No, you don't have any. Well, some of you do, I'm sure, because the last sermon I borrowed a pencil. At least there must be one in each class that has pencil and paper. At least the sisters and the teachers can, can take down the words. Because we're going to have a lesson in Greek today. Yes. We have only one word in English for love. And that's the reason we have to use words like the word love for the same things as I love pickles. I love the New York Mets. I love God. You see how confusing it gets? Now, the Greeks had three words for love. And we're going to go through each of these three words. So the title of this sermon is A Lesson in Greek. Now, the first Greek word, so write it down, you who have pencils. If you have not, remember it. The first Greek word for love is spelled E-R-O-S. 
eros. What does it mean? What kind of love? Well, each of you children, for example, have special friends. And the love that you would have for one another would be called, by the Greeks, eros love. And we have friends. Some are closer than others. And the Greeks use the word eros to speak of that very deep, personal, intimate kind of love. It could be used also for a man in, in love. G.K. Chesterton uh, once proposed to his wife this way, and it's a beautiful example of Eros. He said, there are four lamps of thanksgiving burning before me. The first that I was made out of the same earth as you. Two, I have tried to love everything in the universe as a remote preparation for loving you. And three, I have never run after strange women. You cannot understand how much this prepares a man for true love. And fourth, my previous existence ends here. It has led me to you. That was Eros. I once asked a man what he would like to be if he could come back to earth two years after he died. Do you know what he said? His wife's second husband. <laughs> and I heard a little boy about the same age as some of the boys who were here who said one day to his mother, he says, Mommy, it was awfully nice of you to get a man like Daddy for us. Well, that was Eros. So you see, it was a very fine, clean, noble love. Then it changed. And it changed thanks to a man by the name of Freud who took that Greek word that meant a fine, clean love, and he changed it into the erotic. E-R-O-T-I-C, erotic. What does it mean in our language? Sex. And today when people speak of love, that's generally what they first think about. And it really, outside of marriage, is not love at all. And why isn't it? Because there is no love of person for person. It is only a love of someone else who gives me an experience. You drink the water, you forget the glass. There might just as well be a mask over a person's face. And just as soon as that person ceases to give pleasure, then the person is no longer loved. That's not Eros. Sex is replaceable. Love is not. No one can take the place of a mother or father, husband, wife, brother, or sister. Freud, therefore, spoiled it. 
and brought into this world a, an importance to carnal knowledge and carnal feeling, which eventually meant a great disrespect to persons. It is the whole person that is loved. That's one of the reasons why women are slow to love, because they will not love until they can love completely and totally. A man can love a part of a woman, but a woman can love only the whole man. She gives herself, really. So the first meaning of the word love, eros, became spoiled when it was turned into sex. So it is well for us, therefore, to leave it and go now to another Greek word and write down this one, those of you who have pencils. The second Greek word is, is a word you already know. You didn't know that you knew Greek, but you do. You say Greek every day. P-H-I-L-I-A. Philia. Philadelphia. What is Philadelphia? Made up of two Greek words. Philia and Adelphos. A-D-E-L-P-H-O-S. Adelphos in Greek means brother. So Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. Philanthropy. You know that word. You can't spell it in the third grade, but you will later on. And what does philanthropy mean? Philia's love, anthropos is man. Love a fellow man. So if eros, in its good sense, means a deep reverence for a person, philia is concern for other persons. No matter who they are. Philia, therefore, is a love of humanity. Because every person in the world bears a divine image. We cannot pick and choose and say, oh no, I will, I will love this person or this race or this class or this color and not another. Now let me give you some examples of philia brotherly love because we have to talk in examples today to these young people there was an English or rather an Indian East Indian mystic by the name of Singh who wanted to go into Tibet in order to evangelize the Tibetans but he needed a Tibetan guide to take him over the great Himalaya mountains And they had gone up a short distance when they became tired and cold. And they sat down on a snowy rock. And Singh said to the Tibetan guide, I think I hear the voice of someone down in that crevice. The Tibetan guide said, well, we're almost frozen ourselves. What difference does it make? Singh went down into the abyss and found a man there, dragged him out, 
carried him down to the base of the mountains and was refreshed by this act of brotherly love. And when he came back, he found the Tibetan frozen to death where he had left him. He had showed no filial love and he died in his coldness. Now you may say, you cannot like everybody. No, you cannot like everybody, but you can love everybody. Let me explain that. Now, if any of you children invited me to dinner, your mother would prepare something nice. What do you think your mother would prepare? What kind of meat? Hmm? Chicken? Roast beef. That would be a good, that would be a meal I would like. <laughs> Who else would make a suggestion? What? Spaghetti. <laughs> Here's a bit of Italian background. What? What? French dinner. Who's that Francaise? You're French? No. What? Hamburgers. <laughs> do you know that I do my own cooking? And that's the only thing that I cook are hamburgers. Really. Nothing else but hamburgers. What else would I have for dinner? Hmm? What? What? Chicken? Turkey. Yes. All right. Hot dogs. Great American dish. Yes. Chicken. All right. Let's stop there. Now I've got a good meal. All right. Now, this last girl said she would have chicken. Do you know I don't like chicken? Do you know that I hate chicken? Bishop, you're not having it for lunch, are you? Hamburgers. Hamburgers. Now, why don't I like chicken? What I'm trying to do, you mustn't lose the point. We're talking about filial love, and I'm saying that you cannot like everybody, but you can love everybody. So, I don't like chicken. Now, why don't I like chicken? Well, when I was a boy, my father used to send us out to a farm that he had outside of the city. My father believed in hard work, and I never got over it. And the farmer tenant would give Ashin kids chicken every day but Friday. I was the oldest of the Sheen boys. So I had to go out and catch a hen and wring its neck. In the course of my young life, I rang the necks of 21,432 hens. At night, I don't have nightmares. I have night hens. <laughs> I have visions of headless chickens squirming in barnyard dust. Now, this pretty little blonde girl over here who said that she would have chicken for me. Now, if, I, if your mother prepared chicken for me, I would eat the chicken. And I wouldn't say... 
I don't like chicken. You'd never know that I didn't like it. Why could I eat it? Because I love it. Now, what's the difference between liking and loving? Liking is in the feelings, the emotions. We just don't have a complete control over some of our likes. But we do have control over our will. That is why our blessed Lord said, A new commandment I give you. Commandment. That you love one another as I have loved you. See, it was a commandment. It's in the will. So my will can force me to eat chicken though I don't like it. And my will can force me to love everybody though I may not like them. Though there may be an emotional reaction. I'll still love them. Now that's philia. You see how very different love is from the eros which is good, noble love, to the filial love. I'll give you another example. About seven or eight years ago, I was on a plane traveling from New York to Chicago, as I will be doing this coming Saturday. Well, as the plane took off from New York, the stewardess sat down on the seat immediately adjoining mine. She was a ravishingly beautiful girl. Celibacy doesn't blind us, you know. I can look at a menu without ordering. And she said to me, do you remember me? And I said, no, I don't. I ought to, but I don't remember you. Well, she said, two years ago on this plane, I met you and I talked to you for 20 minutes. Well, what did I say? You began by saying, you are a very beautiful girl. And did you know that of all the gifts that God gave, the one that he gets back last and least of all is the gift of beauty? He gives money and... It's used for the poor and for the church. He gives the gift of song and people sing for his glory. And very often when he gives beauty, he gets back nothing but a pile of old bones. So since you are so beautiful, why don't you give your beauty to people who have never seen anything beautiful? That's what you said. And I said, well, that sounds just exactly like me. That's what I would say. Last night after the services, a father came up to me with two of his children, one of the girls about maybe 12, 13, a very beautiful child. And I said, what would you like to talk to me? What would you like me to talk about? She said, vocations, because I want to be a nun. And I was thinking again of of this experience of mine, of giving beauty back again to God. So she said, coming back to the conversation with the stewardess, she said, all right, now I'm willing to give up anything. Do whatever you tell me. All right, you come to my office in New York and I will tell you where you are going. She said, you can tell me now. 
because I don't care where you send me, I will go. I said, all right, you're going to Vietnam. You are going to a leper colony. So I sent her to a leper colony. And she has a jeep. She drives the jeep around villages. And the lepers, when they are driven out of villages, will very often hide under bridges. And she picks them up in her truck and then takes them to a leprosarium where, with the doctor, she cares for them. And she wrote to me and said, I don't know whether they ever think of seeing anything beautiful, but I know that I do. I'm seeing the gratitude of these good people. That's philia. Now, you young people do not know what a leper is. There are 10 million lepers in the world. 10 million. It's a terrible disease that... It really affects the nerves, but your joints drop off. And a leper always feels, in the Old Testament, they had to shout the word unclean when they went near anyone. But I will tell you more about lepers in a moment when we come to another kind of love. Now, this was a perfect example of philia, love of fellow man. And so let one of the effects now of this mission, first of all, be a love of every single person in the world. See in them the image of God. Be kind to them for God's sake, for Christ's sake. This is filial love. And we want to be loved. The trouble is that that's what we concentrate on. I would like to be loved. I would like to be popular. No, we have to to love, not to be loved. We are not circles circumscribed by cells or to be like crosses, arms outstretched to embrace all humanity. We therefore have up to this point two kinds of love, eros and philia. Now get out your pencils again. The last Greek word. There's no English equivalent for this word. A G A P E Agape Sometimes pronounced agape but it's agape Where did the word come from This was a Greek word that was used very seldom in pre-Christian Greek literature And the New Testament writers sought for a word in the Greek language because the New Testament was written originally in Greek. And they sought for a word that was hardly ever used in order that they might use it in a very definite sense. And they took that word agape. And they made it stand for the love that Christ showed us in becoming man and dying for our sins. This is agape. And it is used in the New Testament. Now, you children in third grade, get a hold of a Greek New Testament and count the word agape. No, I don't, I'm not serious. 
Now, but it's used about 250 times in the New Testament. What does it mean? It means loving when we're not loved. It's loving the unlovable. That's agape. When God came down to this earth, he came because we were unlovable. We did not love him. And how did he find us lovable? Well, he found us lovable by putting his love into us. Now take me, for example. I am not particularly lovable. And yet God finds me very lovable. Now, there are two or three of you in the audience, and two or three of you young people, who will admit that you're not very lovable yourselves. But God loves you anyway. Why does he love me? He puts his love into me, and then I become lovable. Every child is extremely lovable to a mother. Like the mother here with the little child. Was he? Oh, yes, there you are. Where's the child? <laughs> child? Child is gone? Do you still love the child? Yes. Oh, yes. And so th this is the way we find people lovable, and this is the way we practice agape. We put love in people where we do not find love. Then they're lovable. See, this is something entirely different. This is not human love. This is not eros. This is not a filial love. It's something that is inspired solely by the tremendous love that God had for us, dying for our sins. And it's the only way to be happy, by practicing this Christ love. Our blessed Lord said, you love those that love you? What reward is there in this? Love your enemies. Be good to those who hate you. And then we will be like the Heavenly Father who sent his Son to us. And though we crucified him, he sent us his grace. This is agape. Now, I was, I've been abstract for a couple of minutes, and so we have to get back now to our young people. And I will tell you a story about how I failed to practice agape. Incidentally, those of you who are old enough and are studying scripture, which I hope you're doing in school, read and put this down, the 13th chapter of St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 13. That whole chapter is about agape. Chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians. Listen, I heard a lay reader not very long ago. Uh, he was supposed to read a letter to the Philippians, and he called it a letter to the Filipinos. <laughs> and I also heard another reader who was to read the epistle to the Thessalonians, and he called it the epistle to the theologians. 
So this is to the Corinthians, 13th chapter. All right, I'm to tell you now how I failed to practice it. I was visiting a leper colony in Baluba, Africa, and I brought with me 500 little silver crucifixes about an inch and a half high. I was going to give a silver crucifix to each leper. And the first leper who came to see me had his left arm eaten away at the elbow. And he had a rosary around the stump of his arm. He held out his right hand. It was the most foul, fetid, noisome mass of corruption I ever saw. And I held the crucifix above his hand. And I dropped it. And it was swallowed up in that volcano of leprosy. All of a sudden, there were 501 lepers in that camp. And I was the 501st. For I had taken the symbol of God's identification with man and refused to identify myself with someone who was a thousand times better on the inside than I was. And then there came over me the awful thing that I had done, and I took my fingers and dug them into his leprous hand and pulled out the crucifix and then pressed it to his hand. And so on for all the other 500 lepers. And from that time on, I learned to love them. Because our blessed Lord on a cross was described as looking like a leper. And love, therefore, real agape, is identification with others in whom we see Christ. Now, before I came up in this pulpit to preach, I went over to see this lady here in this wheelchair. And I said to her, you are bringing a blessing to this service. Why is she bringing a blessing? Why does my heart go out to her? Because she's suffering? No. Because I see Christ on his cross. I see her acceptance of Christ and the continuation of his passion. And it is the fact that the good Lord has given me a sense of this agape love that I can immediately feel a very special attachment for a person of that kind. So my good people, coming back to the beginning of this talk, and my young people, remember this. When you talk about love, do not be saying, well, anything is all right if you love. It isn't. What kind of love? Is it eros? Is it the erotic? If it is, you're spoiling yourself. Is it philia? You love everybody? Is it agape? 
Does there come a time when you have to give yourself up for another? Christ gave himself up for us. Now this is love. It is much more complicated than it seems. And in addition to that, you've had a great Greek lesson. So you people who have been to this noon service, when you go home and you meet others and they say, what did the bishop talk about? Say, you wouldn't understand. It was all in Greek. (laughs) You see, you, in virtue of being here today, have derived an intellectual superiority over other people that can satisfy you for two weeks. Use not the word, then, love too loosely, but begin to practice the love of which I have spoken. All three loves, a deep love of friendship, a deep love of fellow man, and a sacrificial love, a readiness even to love enemies and those that are unlovable because Christ loved us. And may the Spirit of Christ impress this upon your heart. And then you'll understand the shape of your heart. Now, you remember, you children remember Valentine's Day, and you have little hearts, don't you? And the hearts are always perfect in shape, aren't they? But that's not the way the human heart looks. You look up in a book of physiology, the shape of a heart, and you'll find that it's not like a valentine heart. There's a small piece missing out of the side of every human heart. And that may be to symbolize a piece that was torn out of the universal heart of humanity on the cross. But I think the real meaning is this. When God made the heart of each and every one of you, every one of you, he found it so good, so fine, that he kept a small sample of it in heaven. And he sent the rest of this heart, of your heart, into the world. Well, you'd never be able to love anybody or anything with your whole heart because you don't have a whole heart to love with. Well, you'll never be completely satisfied with any love that you have because you don't have the whole heart. And you'll never really understand what perfect love is. You'll never be wholehearted until you go back again to God. To recover that peace that he has been keeping for you from all eternity. God love you. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program. Bishop Sheen presents, hosted by Al Smith. Good day, everyone, and welcome once again to Bishop Sheen Presents. And I hope you enjoyed that reflection entitled, What Love Is?, And uh, now Bishop Sheen will talk about the infinity of littleness. Please enjoy. Friends, no old people ever enter the kingdom of heaven. Now please do not be discouraged. 
Uh, those of you who do not use palm olive soap. Because here I'm speaking not a physical age, but rather a mental age. I mean those who are mentally old never enter the kingdom of heaven. Age is not really a question of years, it's the climate of the soul. Our divine Lord said, unless you become as a little child, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. And if it please you then tonight, we will talk about littleness and childlikeness and humility. First of all, a law in the physical order. In order to see anything big, one must always be physically little. That is one of the reasons why a child's world is always so immense. I believe to every boy his father is the biggest man in all the world, and his uncle that is standing alongside of a window is taller than the oak tree that is beyond. Every child loves the story of Jack and the Beanstalk. And to him, beanstalks actually tower to the skies, and giants are always the creations of humidity. A little boy can put himself on a broomstick, and in his imagination, it isn't long until he's clinging to the whistling mane of every wind, riding the rough savannas of the blue. And every little girl finds a doll very big, finds it a child, simply because she's little, and all the great maternal instincts come out of her. The boy will receive for Christmas some tin soldiers. They're only about three inches high. He puts them on the carpet, lines them up in battle array, and soon he can hear the rat-a-tat of machine guns. He can smell the smoke of battle, hear its din. The red of the carpet becomes the, uh, the blood of the battlefield as poppy fields are turned into veritable as seldom as a blood. It's a real war until he becomes a man. And then, then he sweeps away all of his little tin soldiers and all of his childhood fancies and puts them up into the attic and the world becomes small. When he was a boy, just to walk a mile away from home was to be in another world. Because he was physically little, everything else was big. What does it mean to be a child? To be a child means to live in a nutshell. You count yourself the king of infinite space. It means to be able to nuzzle yourself in the moon. To turn pumpkins into coaches, mice into horses. It means also to be able to sit in the lap of Mother Nature and twine her presses a thousand willful ways to see in which fashion she will look the most beautiful. That's what it means to be a child. Now let's take that law and apply it to adults. To see any great big truth, one must be psychologically little. That is to say, one must be humble. Now let me illustrate. Uh, if the ego, the ego being the self, if the ego expands itself to the infinite, that's the mathematical symbol of infinity, then what is the consequence? In other words, if the ego thinks it knows everything, then you have the consequence that nothing 
Baker. I'm stuck. Now suppose the ego does not think very much of itself and reduces itself to zero. Then what is the consequence? Then everything is bigger than self. And the world begins to be interesting. In other words, in order to discover truth and goodness and justice and divinity itself, one must be very humble and never proud. If a box is filled with salt, it cannot be filled with pepper. And if we are filled with our own importance, then we can never be filled with anything outside of ourselves. I believe that if a man thinks he knows everything, then God cannot teach him anything. One of the great virtues is the virtue of docility. And docility means teachableness, to be able to be taught something. But if a man is proud of all that he knows and thinks he has knowledge within himself, well then there's no truth beyond him, there's not even any love beyond him. And this, uh, this expansion of self into infinity is certainly not the way of science. Ever notice how, how very calm and passive a scientist is before nature? He just sits, sits and looks at nature. And he awaits nature until nature tells him her laws. He does not say, I know the laws of nature and I'm going to impose my laws upon nature. In a specificity, he waits for the revelation. A beautiful symbol and analogy, incidentally, of the way man ought to be before God. As he just waits for God's will to reveal itself, it will come. He will learn. Feed as ex audito. Faith comes from hearing. It means also comes from being a good listener. Not thinking that one has all truth within oneself. is not the source of all law. Here's another illustration. I, I must learn sometime, I'm, I haven't started practicing yet, learn how to draw men. But I will always tell you what I am drawing. I am now going to draw the sun. This is the sun. These are rays of the sun. Here is a man. See, that's my usual man. That's the only man that I can draw. Now, the man is going in this direction. He's going away from the sun. What happens? There's a shadow of himself. See, I gave him a big head. The shadow's in front of him, and after a while, that shadow begins to be a kind of a fantasy. He thinks that's the way he really is. As long as the light is behind him, and as long as men are walking away from divine truth and divine light, they create psychological fantasies. They believe themselves different than they are. And if the sun is ahead of them, then the fantasies fall behind. But the real position, 
of course, is to have the light right above you. Then there's no fantasy that you have to, that you have behind dragging you. It's a complete identification of light in oneself. So the condition, therefore, of discovering truth is to be humble. And the condition of discovering goodness is to be humble. That is to say, one must admit that one is not a saint. But after all, there's room for improvement. And God can teach me something, and maybe his grace can come to my aid. What then is this virtue of humility? Well, the virtue of humility is the virtue that tells us the truth about ourselves and makes us love our neighbor. First of all, it tells us the truth about ourselves so we never exaggerate ourselves. It also tells us the truth about our neighbor also, in the sense that we are not exaggerating, underestimating ourselves, or exaggerating ourselves. It might be well, possibly, to give you a few examples and forms of, of pride. I want you to notice how quickly our angel uh, is working, cleaning backboards. You know, the reason is every angel lives in mortal dread of being knocked back to a cherub. Now, here are some forms, some forms of pride. One of the forms of pride is vanity. Another is, is self-criticism. I mean, criticism of others, a critical spirit. A spirit of criticism. First of all, vanity. Why is it that beggars always use tin cups? It's because they appeal to the vanity of the giver. He likes to hear the clink of the coin in the cup. And in churches, we always use flush-bottom collection baskets because people are supposed to be flush, so we use the flush. But at any rate, there's not supposed to be any pride. Then take, for example, there can be, you know, pious fraud. There can be people who boast of the fact that they are, are very pious. I once heard a very interesting story about Father Vaughan. Father Vaughan was an a uh, great preacher of a uh, generation or more ago in England. And he was on top of London bus reading his breviary. And the breviary, as you know, is this prayer that we have to say every day. It's made up for the most part of uh, sacred scripture. It takes about an hour a day for us to read it. But Father Vaughan was reading his breviary up on top of the London bus. And someone came up and saw him and said, Look at this. Here he is. The great Father Vaughan gets on top of a London bus, takes out his prayer book, and begins praying so that everybody can see him. He said, when I pray, I follow the injunction of Scripture. I close the door, go into my closet, and pray alone to the Father. Father Vaughan says, men, get out top of a London bus and tell the world about it. <laughs> now, people not only can exaggerate what they do, and uh, like authors, for example, ever notice how authors have their picture taken, noticed in a magazine? The book is always cover out. You can see the title, you can see the author's name, you can see the publisher, you can see everything except the place where you can get it at a discount. <laughs> but there's also such a thing as underestimating, which is a form of pride. For example, uh, if a man who was six feet six said, uh, when you said to him, I'm minor tall, he said, oh, no, really, I'm not, I'm only three feet six. That's not humility. Or the golfer, for example, who smashes his clubs and says, that's a rotten shot. By that he means this is really not my normal game. I haven't been on a normal game for 30 years. 
Or, for example, if I should say, if you should come to me afterwards and say, uh, that was a nice, uh, nice television show. If I should say, oh, it was nothing. I only spent three minutes preparing it. That is vanity. Because I'm implying, just think of what this show would be if I spent four minutes preparing it. <laughs> and then in addition to vanity, there's also the critical spirit. Uh, people who are very proud, egotistical, have many things wrong with them. First of all, their own pride, selfishness. Now, their conscience bothers them. And because their conscience bothers them, they're very unhappy. Instead of criticizing themselves, they project the criticism to others and become very critical, and nothing that anyone does from that point on can ever be right. And this critical spirit uh, always enjoys slander. Why is it that newspapers today uh, carry murder stories, adulteries, infidelities, disloyalties, and all that from the front page? It's news. Well, why? Well, simply because people, when they, when they read about a murder, when they read about a thief, they say, I'm not that bad, really. I'm pretty good. And so they establish comparisons and say, I'm much better than my neighbor. But as regards the, the critical spirit, I think everyone suffers from false criticism of others. But I believe that the very best consolation that could be given to anyone was one that Walter Winchell gave some years ago. Uh, he said, uh, remember that nobody will ever get ahead of you as long as he's kicking you in the seat of the pants. <laughs> it's a physical impossibility. And so we just simply have to, to bear with it. Uh, then there can also be, in addition to this, uh, to this critical spirit, uh, there can be a kind of um, sense of irresponsibility. People deny that they ever do anything wrong. That's pride. I heard some time ago of, of two social workers who were discussing a criminal. And uh, one of them said, well, I know, certainly he committed murder. Certainly he robbed the bank and all that. But after all, remember, he was an orphan at 12. And the other social worker said, yes, but he shot his parents. <laughs> and the first social worker said, I know he did, but he did it in self-defense. Now, there are many other things that we were prepared to say about humility, but I wonder if anybody would ever be this humble. Suppose someone was shocked at the way dogs were treated and wanted to help dogs, to bring to them a kind of a superior intelligence. Do you think there's any human being in the world that would ever be willing, if he could, to throw off his body? And take his soul, his intellect, his will, his affections, his heart, his great loves, and put this spirit of his into a dog. Do you think anybody would ever be that humble? But imagine two more things. Suppose that when he did that, he would resolve, first of all, never to transcend the limitations of that dog organism. Though he had a mind 
that could scan the infant. He would never speak. Never say words. But would limit himself to a body. Though he was an artist, he would never use his paw to create. And then suppose in addition to that, that he subjected himself always to the companionship of creatures likened to himself, to dogs. Leading their lives, sharing their trials, just in an effort to help. I do not believe there's a single man in the world that would be humble enough to do that. But that gives us some old faint analogy of something else that happened. And the analogy holds just for humility, but does not hold for the whole truth. And then it only suggests, as I said, in dimmest outlined humidity. Suppose now a God became man and put himself in a human organism and subjected himself to the limitations of a human organism. And though he was the word, could only use words, though he had an infinite mind, would nevertheless speak in parables so that dull, tardy intellects could understand and finally would subject himself to the companionship of other men. Slow intellects, dull, to grasp any great truth, and yet would be patient with them, would accept from them their abuses, their misunderstandings, their punishments, their cruelties, anything else. That indeed, would be humiliating. If you think that it would be humiliating for a human spirit to go into the organism of an animal, what do you think it would be like for an infinite God to ever go into the form of a man? To humble himself to the form of a servant. that humiliation that would make a feast great where the world thought of a babe in a manger. And that's the sort of thing, too, incidentally, that gives some meaning to the poem of Francis Thompson. Little Jesus Wast thou shy once? And just as small as I, and how did it feel like to be? Out of heaven and just like me. I should think that I would cry for my house all made of sky, and the twaking would distress me, not an angel there to dress me. Hast thou ever any toys, like us little girls and boys, 
And didst thou play with all the angels that were not too tall with stars for marbles? Did the things play? Can you see me through their wings? And did thy mother let thee spoil thy robes by playing on our soil? How nice for them always knew, cause in heaven it was quite clean. Did thy mother tonight kiss thee and fold thy clothes in tight? And didst thou feel quite good in bed, kiss and sweet? And thy prayer said, Thou canst not have forgotten all that it feels like to be small. Then take me by the hand and walk and listen to my baby talk. God love you. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program. Bishop Sheen presents, hosted by Al Smith. Well, my dear friends, I have to say that our hour has come to an end, and so I'd invite you to come back next week. And until that time, may the Lord continue to bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. God love you. You have been listening to Bishop Sheen Presents, hosted by Al Smith, here on Radio Maria Canada.